Hello, and welcome to this discussion about what we do after liberalism with Carl, and also Associate Professor of the Philosophy of Religion over at University of Cambridge, James Orr. Thanks very much for coming in today. Good to be with you both. Yeah, appreciate it. I thought I'd kick this off because we have just concluded about a six-hour debate series on liberalism, which ended with Carl shouting, the liberal ideal must die, something which... It does have to, and yep. I can expand on that at length, but <laughs> yeah. I won't at the moment. <laughs> something which we, we both agree with. But yeah. the reason I, I wanted to pull you in on this is quite fortuitous that you wrote a recent critic piece about it, is my opening salvo was something to do with the dual ideas of liberalism being freedom and equality, and they exist in tandem, but also in antagonism. And you wrote a piece in The Critic, and, and if I might just read a quote, I quite liked it. Liberalism was beset from the outset by a tectonic tension between two moral ideals, because bestowing freedom on individuals to pursue their private conceptions of human flourishing must always issue in the kind of unequal outcomes that will strike the unreflective observer as morally objectionable. So, given that there is always this liberatory dynamism within liberalism, uh, as you said in your, your recent trigonometry debate, uh, has a mutant strain of liberalism brought us to the decline that we're seeing around us now? Was it always meant to be this way, or is it just some kind of aberration? Uh, well, I take the view, and I've always taken the view, that what we're seeing today is a feature of liberalism and not a bug, that it was always going to end like this. There are certain catalysts that I think have been accelerating it. Uh, I think diversity is one of them. Um, I think that a lot of the energy that liberalism relied on was an energy that ar arose from a basic sort of homogeneity of cultural outlook. And so you could talk about, oh, we're all pursuing, we're all free to pursue our private conceptions of the good. But in reality, the parameters of those different con conceptions were drawn pretty tightly, broadly speaking, because we all emerge from the same kind of intellectual, religious, uh, literary and cultural traditions. So there's all kind of, in, there's a sort of, it was an optical illusion, that sort of sense of, you know, liberal stability, liberal order, the order of orders of toleration that Locke is mm. aiming for. And freedom and equality as aspirations are also pretty plausible goals within that kind of sort of stable moral and cultural order. Um, now, that, what we're seeing now, I think, is, is definitely the unravelling of liberalism and the unravelling of the logic of liberalism in all sorts of difficult and complicated ways. Um, and I'd be, I'm, you know, I'm skeptical. It's very easy for academics like me to sort of make a little bit too much of the sort of easy continuity in the history of ideas. Like this idea brought this about, this idea brought that about. One of the things I enjoy about these kinds of conversations and talking to people outside the ivory tower is that you, you're, you're forced to think a lot more about other factors and cultural change. So I now think that you know, technology has much more of a role than academics sometimes like to admit in you know, material conditions. Uh, law has an enormous effect. Uh, changes in science and technology or stagnation in science and technology also has enormous impact. Um, and demographic change, uh, that, that, that has, a, that has a, an impact that is simply not visible to people who are brought up in an intellectual tradition where human beings are fundamentally fungible. Mm. Um, and that's certainly true of those brought up in modern political philosophy. Mm. I think if you've done some classics, and I was very fortunate enough to be put from an early age, it was painful, but I'm very grateful for it, um, through ancient Greek and Latin and reading all those old, old texts. And that, that is a great sort of antidote to the kind of intellectual conformism 
that you see in the academy today. You know, can I remember, you know, I remember my Homer, I remember my Aristotle, I remember my Plato, and I'm, indeed I teach it. Uh, and I see that as the most important part, very much, those are the most important. The classical canon is, is one of the most important parts of what I, what I get to teach, what, what I enjoy teaching so much. Not because when we do the history of ideas, we're hunting for parallels to reinforce our own sort of cultural and ideological presuppositions, which is often the way thing, things are done these days when looking at, the, looking at the past. But Bernard Williams, the philosopher, talks about this. The point of doing the history of ideas is to, is, is as an exercise in strange making, making strange our assumptions, uh, understanding just how contingent what seem to be self-evident truths really are. Um, and uh, freedom, the pursuit of happiness, life, liberty, etc. These are, these are not obvious. Uh, these are not self-evident goods. They're not self-evidently primary goods, nor, is, uh, nor are they definitionally clear, nor is it clear what their semantic scope is. And we can go on to talk about liberalism. We can just see just how slippery the word freedom and liberty really mm -hmm. is and just how much work it can do, just how much scope for equivocation there can be over that. Same for equality too. I wanted to pick up on the technology point there because I think those two are bound up and this is something that, and it's funny you mentioned the, the classics because this was part of your angle of attack on liberalism towards the end. Um, one of my criticisms of liberalism is that unlike something like the Amish, they don't have any reason not to adopt the next stage of technological progression and that dislocates them from the kind of geography and tradition that kept freedom and equality within a tight set of bounds where, where liberalism was contained. Because, okay, if, if your goal is to make people free and equal and more prosperous, then you have to adopt this thing, and it expands the remit of the amount of people that you can then consider your liberal subjects, and then we ratchet up to uh, in, encompassing people outside the liberal tradition within liberalism, and then it collapses on itself. That's, that's how you get demographic change, for example. You can't really argue in the age of mass migration against it within the liberal paradigm if people can actually get here by planes. Just, just, can I just interrupt you here? Sorry, I actually think that technological progress is a feature of liberalism as well, mm -hmm. because the entire point of technology is to free mankind mm -hmm. from previous constraints. Mm -hmm. And so liberalism is inherently bound up with things like the Industrial Revolution and various other technological innovations and sees them as desirable for exactly the reason. It's not even that they can't stop themselves. They want that, and that mm -hmm. goes further down that road. Yeah, that's why, that's why progress yeah. starts looking like an unalloyed good. Yeah. This is why even, so you're, you're involved with ARC, um, you know, thank you very much for the invite. But one of the things that kicked it off, which was a contention, I think, within the vision of ARC, was we believe that the line of history is there is an ARC and it bends towards justice. And sometimes when the liberals conceive of themselves as placed within that ARC, especially where liberalism sees itself as within the Enlightenment, so it is the, the premier philosophy that just needs to be exported elsewhere, uh, you can think of yourself as some kind of steward that just needs to bring liberalism everywhere and then, it, then it's good, then it's, then it's progressive. But what they're aiming at, and the reason why I said that Marxism and liberalism might be part of the same strain, this is something we hit on in our debate series, was that ultimately the liberals and the Marxists just disagree on procedure, but not destination. Like They both want a series of plentiful, abundant material goods without relying on each other. And they want a conflict to end all conflicts. Um, and so this is, this is what I wanted to put to you in terms of your, your knowledge of the classics. We the main part of the disagreement was if there was a button in the room that you could press and it ended all conflicts tomorrow, would you press it? And the liberal side said yes, and we said no. And Carl said because you would a strange man from his nature and from the Homeric virtues which make man a man. So 
Do you see that strain as something that's a problem within liberalism that it can't quite escape? Well, I've got to say that the parallel you draw there between liberalism and Marxism is fascinating and, and actually, you know, an intuitively correct. Um, Marxism is downstream, after all, of the Enlightenment. It's a downstream of the great revolution in liberalism and is mm. very, very plausibly parasitic upon it. But it's also very consciously downstream of it. Absolutely this right. Is, yeah. yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you know, Marx is a left Hegelian. Hegel is, uh, uh, well, let's not go down that rabbit hole, but he is inheriting <laughs> yeah. the turn to the subject inaugurated by Kant and the various figures between him and Kant. And he's got a vision of reality which is immensely sophisticated. And in some senses, if you look at his philosophy of right from the 1820s, I think... Uh, plausibly a kind of manifesto for a certain kind of conservatism when it comes to the institutional life and a sort of guild structure mm. of, of, of society. But yes, Marx is emerging out, out of the liberal revolution. And yes, both are driven by a kind of secular utopianism. That is to say, both think that uh, we either there's no heaven <laughs> beyond, there's no, there's no life beyond this one, or that our conceptions of whether or not there is should be merely privatised, so functionally equivalent, uh, but that heaven on earth is possible and mm. achievable. And once, that's in once that belief is in place, then you've got a recipe for immense risk. Um, and you've also got a sense that there is uh, a direction to history. So in many ways, there's a kind of inherited providentialism, there's a sort of secularised mm. of Providence. It's not an accident that Marx's father was was a rabbi, um, and nor is it an accident that most of the great sort of eighteenth-century philosophers are, you know, emerging from a uh, an intellectual tradition that had a very clear eschatology, a theory of the end times of what's mm. going to happen, a kind of final judgment and a final moment of of release. There's a wonderful book by Carl Becker, nineteen thirty-two, called "The Heavenly City of the Eighteenth-Century Philosophers." Where he sort of there's a kind of inventory of all the varieties of utopianism that are laced into all of the all mm. of the different uh, Enlightenment philosophers for all of their for all of their big differences between rationalists and empiricists and so on and so forth. So no, I'm 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 inclined to agree to uh, agree with you in, uh, entirely on that. Um, I mean, as for the ancient world, you know, I think you know, there are so many fundamental differences and so many sort of habits of thought that need mm. to be learned and absorbed. It's so easy to project our own views onto those great texts. Um, but your thought experiment of, you know, if you could take a pill and it would erase all conflict immediately, I, for me is the same question, it's the same sort of question as saying, if you could um, magically transform human nature entirely, uh, just like that, uh, would you do it? Um, and that's an unanswerable question. Um, we, we, we don't know, uh, we just don't know what would, what would flow from that. I mean, yes, you may live, you may inhabit a conflict-free utopia after you've taken the pill, um, but would you still be you? I mean, this is sort of Carl's yeah, no. instinctive reaction too. No, you, no, we wouldn't. We would no longer be, we would be post-human. But, uh, but also my, my objection goes a bit further because there's one thing trying to create heaven on earth and say, well, in heaven, everyone is eternal, nothing changes, and we are always in this perpetual state of heavenly grace. Um, but that obviously can't be the case with the earth. And one of the things about the people who say, yeah, well, I'd push the button because I myself have arrived at a position in my life 
where the forces that made me have made me sufficiently good that I feel that this would be an acceptable thing to expand out to all mankind. Yeah. Um, but of course, human, the human race has to continue worrying. And so, okay, well, those forces will no longer be present to make you into the kind of character that you'll be, and therefore your children will actually not have the opportunity for character growth that you have, and you'll be depriving them of that. And what kind of people... Uh, what are people like when they're deprived of the opportunity of character growth? Well, look at the children of billionaires and millionaires. They're really insufferable. I actually don't want my kids to be like that. And so this it's, it's very much sort of John Lennon, imagine, end of history, eternal year zero. It's like, it, it and th this is where I think it really, when I, when I read ancient philosophers, I just realize how much wiser about the human condition they are mm. than we are, mm. the, the liberals, right? The, the people who live in liberalism. Because they recognize a human life as a teleological thing. You've got a beginning, a middle, and an end. You're going to arrive at certain points, and so you can't judge a man's life as good or bad until he's dead. You know, the, the old um, Solon. Is it? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, and that's a great point. And so the liberal who's like, yeah, no, I'll press the button, is doing away with all of that and pretending that they will live forever and that everyone will be made in their own image forevermore. But that ignores the presuppositions of what rough parts of the human, human experience they had to go through to get to that position right mm. there and then. Mm. And that's why I really can't stand this kind of end of history John Lennon imagined. Mm. No, you need the bad bits to get to the good bits. Yeah. And yeah. So. I, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more that um, not only is there a ready acknowledgement of uh, grief and conflict and just the sheer struggle of, of, of life, that this, mm. is, this is part of the nature of human existence. Uh, the Greek tragedians are probably more powerful on this than, uh, than the philosophers. And they drew pleasure from it. They made it pleasurable That's to go right. through. I mean, the great line at the end of Aeschylus' Agamemnon is this, the phrase is, pathemata mathemata, sufferings, learnings, to mm. pathe mathos. This is the great sort of, one of the great slogans from the only complete um, uh, trilogy of Greek tragedies that survive. That uh, that's absolutely uh, 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 you know, wired in, that it's not seen as a sort of un un unfortunate intrusion but as it were, as a sort of necessary intrinsic part of human existence and a pedagogically powerful mm. dimension of human existence. I think part of the problem, it could be that once Abrahamic monotheism starts to assert itself, there is a kind of, there is a sense that, look, we've got an, an immensely powerful and all-loving deity who could answer my prayers and make my life, turn us all into marshmallow conflict free yeah. world yeah. if we wanted him to. And why is there so much suffering when, uh, when, when uh, given, given the existence of such God? And, and so I think there is a sense that of cosmic justice starts to, starts to dawn with Abrahamic monotheism. You see it a little bit. You see traces of it in the Greeks and, and the Romans. I mean, book 18 of the Iliad, for example, there's this wonderful scene. I was reading it to my daughter last night that, where, where Achilles' mother, Thetis, gives who's a goddess gives him this beautiful shield and depicts this perfect sort of society on it. And uh, there's a sense of this phrase of the justice of use, which feels like a kind of Thomas mm. Aquinas on natural law mm. or something. But it's, there are only traces of it. You see it too in the, in the Stoics to some extent. But I think once Abrahamic monotheism comes along, and particularly Christianity starts to assert itself, there is a sense that injustice in the world or even hardship in the world even if it seems random, even if it doesn't seem to be some positive human agency behind it, starts to seem like a world that's out of joint. Mm. And this is this is a, mm. this is a per sort of perfectly Pauline vision. Mm. Now that's actually fine for as long as uh, there is an eschatolo eschatology in place, right? There is still this sense of 
creation is kind of groaning, as Paul puts it in Romans 8. And there is a sense that the, the, the explanation for the why things are out of joint, because salvation has not come, the world is not filled with grace, and, 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 and so on. But once Christianity starts to go down more secularizing routes, certainly I think after the Reformation, you start to get the idea that no, justice has got to be done here on earth, and it's much more up to ourselves, not the organs of the, of the church, mm. not the priests, uh, not the monks praying away, but us. We've got, a, we've got real, real agency, agency in ordinary life. This is Max Weber's great, great thesis, and I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of truth to it. Um, so yes, I mean, we've, we've forgotten that and we expect, uh, we expect life to be, generally speaking, free from uh, opposition and difficulty. And partly that's, I think, because uh, freedom and equality aren't just the kind of, they're the goals, if you like, the sort of overarching horizon mm. of liberalism. But there are also lots of assumptions wired into liberalism. One is the doctrine, I think, of the perfectibility of human beings, or indeed, you might say, the doctrine of original good, mm. which, I mean, either we're originally <laughs> yeah, no, sinful or we're originally yeah, yeah. good. And yeah. so if you're repudiating original sin, which I think the kind of blank slatism of, the, of, of Locke and others do, then you, then you have got this. The only explanation for why things go wrong in your life is some <coughs> kind of externality. Mm. Uh, and once that gets married into, you know, um, once we get into the 20th century and then with the rise of public services and the, the welfare state, then it becomes very easy to attribute moral failure to state failure or the failure of others not to, not to help you out. I mean, that's a little speculative and simplistic, but I think there is something to that. Um, the idea is, I mean, on the blank slate-tist model, uh, you know, the, the, any any disparities, any difficulties that you that you meet are um, are to do with society, not not really you, because you're uh, you're originally good. And if there's any, mm. you know, if you if you're doing wrong, then it's probably because you know, kind of, kind of your background or whatever it might be. All crime becomes kind of disease or pathology. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, I mean, I, I I couldn't agree more, and that's why you know, going back to the going back to the classics and you know, drawing on the past, drawing on the wisdom of the past is. I think absolutely essential, to, and I, I try to do, do that as much as I can in, in Cambridge. And generally speaking, students are very receptive to it. Um, in my in my experience, it's I'm I'm always concerned about how seductive it is, and I think it's actually a really hard sell to say, um, you know, pleasure and uh, freedom from pain are great, uh, but if you considered suffering uh, for a bit, it's a kind of, it's a bit of a hard sell, isn't yeah. it? You know, but if you think about it, that. Every masculine virtue comes out of that. Mm. And actually, it's good to have gone to the gym and lifted your weights. It's good yeah. to have climbed a mountain. It's good yeah. to have done boxing, even though you got punched in the nose. And it's like it's a much more difficult sell, especially as an, uh, I haven't got a, a very polite way of framing this, um, but we live in quite a feminine society now uh it was it was a lot easier in my dad's day when he was a young man uh and they had to do boxing in school um to be like no it's good for you to get punched in the nose whereas now if my son gets uh, bullied in school he's not allowed to punch his bully back mm. uh, and i've actually had to you know have an argument with the female principal of his school about no he is entitled to do it and uh you know i'm going to take him for ice cream afterwards um because this is a value set that's completely alien to the modern managerial and often female-led uh, society. Mm, mm. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, I mean, I've seen quite sophisticated cases for that 
for that point. And, you know, men and women are different. It's, it's yep. important to remind ourselves of that uh, basic, basic <laughs> fact these days. Yep. Uh, and given that they are different, it is very plausible that they're going to, on average and for the most part, have different traits, including different sets and different combinations of psychological traits. Um, obviously, uh, women do not have a pain-free existence. You might say that the most transcendent, joyful and transformative experience of a of a woman's life is the is giving mm. birth. Oh, it's, yeah. also the, it's also the most painful. I've been present at three. I've been present. I've been present at two. Yeah. So we know what that's like. Yeah. But I think you're absolutely right. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, that you know a patriarchy is going to have virtues and vices that will be different from those of a matriarchy. Mm. And I think it's perfectly plausible to think that we are in the modern age driven by uh, feminine norms. Uh, to a degree that was not true in the past. So if you think of the stress on kindness and niceness and so on, they're fairly vacuous virtues and would have been unintelligible to anyone really before 100 years ago. I mean, really, I can't even imagine Achilles mentioning they're, such they're, No, no, they're, they are, they are, they're, they're a sort of gentleness is sort of a virtue, I think, but it's, no, it, it, and, and Paul lists it as, as a virtue. Mm. But um, kindness uh, and niceness... I mean, there, there are no Latin or Greek words for either of those terms. Mm. They are not virtues. They would really be thought to belong in the, in the, in the area of etiquette, yeah. really, just sort of conduct. And, um, you know, the cad could be as, as nice as, as, uh, as the same. Um, but we do, there's an emphasis on that. There's also an emphasis on the verbal over the physical. Mm. So the psychologizing of heart, the language of harm, the concept creep that... Uh, um, that Australian psychologist whose name escapes me now, I think it's simply called Concept Creep, Nick, uh, Nick Adams, I think it was. No, I can't remember his surname now. But very, very, you know, harm is the sort of paradigm of Concept yeah. Creep. And you can see how tempting it is in a world that is driven by Mill's no harm principle. Uh, you can see how attractive it is to turn harm into, from the physical into something purely psychological, because yeah. once you've weaponized that, you've, you've effectively given yourself uh, free reign to structure the world around you as you see fit. Mm. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't. I'd like to see more work on this. I know Richard Hanania has got a you know, has this long and interesting essay on it from two or three years ago on on women's tears. Uh, worth a read. Uh, it's no, a, nothing it, more powerful. It's a, it's very powerful, and mm. it's it's a difficult and delicate area to. Um, to tread on and uh, tread into, but it's, but it's important. We've got to, I mean, it's so tempting, isn't it? This is part of the great assumption of liberalism, one of the cru crucial assumptions of liberalism that goes with the blank slatism is a kind of, uh, a kind of complete tone deafness and total blindness to objective differences between mm. men and women. Like it's very, very easy to see um, the trans phenomenon and androgyny emerging from a culture fundamentally wedded to liberal assumptions. Yeah. It's mm. not a surprise that we don't see this as a phenomenon elsewhere. Not simply because of the emancipatory logic and dynamism of the liberal self constantly seeking to free itself from every possible limit, including it now seems the limits of, of, of our own embodiment, uh, but also because of all sorts of other, all sorts of other drivers and, and catalysts. But, 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 but of course, the blank slatism, the freedom to simply construct one's identity mm. as one sees fit. Um, and that's driven by, no doubt, the digital re revolution. There are certain moments of acceleration, and and uh, you know the digital revolution has obviously accelerated what was always latent, you know, in the kind of avatar world and gamer world, and you know all about that. 
Um, I don't know that much about it actually. No. You'd, you'd be surprised. No. Well, no, 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 um, but it, this is this is. But you work. You, you work a lot in in, the, in within this digital. Oh, revolution we're in the digital. And you're, world, you're yeah. leading the digital counter yeah. revolution. So, you know. well, we yeah. hope so. I mean, uh, until the online safety bill shuts us down. But this is this is one of Mary's memes of where if you live online in to if you spend such an extent of your existence with your body being totally irrelevant to the work and social aspects that you do then the yeah. idea that you're a being of pure will can seem legitimate. Yeah. And so then at that point, embodiment is an opt-in process. Sex becomes cosmetic. It's the old, old Ivan Illich yeah. criticisms. Um, I did want to actually pick up on the, on the feminized society thing. I, mean, I know Jonathan Haidt's doing some good work on that, particularly since 2014, the digital revolution, the new vector of transmission for social contagions among and teenage girls. And the disproportionate girls. impact on teenage girls yeah. of, of the digital revolution. Well, yeah. particularly with the trans phenomenon. Yeah. It was, it was like 4,400 percent increase in young women going to the Tavistock clinic yeah. since 2014. Yeah. Complete inversion of their... That their... social contagion. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But one, one thing I wanted to pick up on, particularly about the harm mitigation thing that, that ties into liberalism, and this ties into the, the would you press the button, um, the, the criticism that you had. You had the same criticism as me as well. Would you have the arrogance to try and enact a peaceful heaven on earth and not expect something to change down the generations that you might need the kind of virtues to oppose? I feel the spectre of Schmidt looming large over the conversation where liberalism blinds you to existential threats by things that you think are neutral, which is yes. politics or, or, or uh, technological progress. Yeah. Um, one of the things that Schmidt did was, back when Leo Strauss was writing his notes on Schmidt, uh, he wrote uh, something on Thomas Hobbes within the notes, and that meant that in the translation, Schmidt went back and retracted his praise of Hobbes as being the preeminent philosopher, as being an important philosopher, because Strauss pointed out, actually, Leviathan is meant to exist to mediate out all conflicts in the end. And so you've spoken a bit fairly recently about the um, therapeutic society. Is that what we're seeing? And is that a consequence of the liberal need to mitigate and disentangle all conflicts? Well, uh, you're absolutely right to pick up or to use a sort of Schmittian frame. I mean, what Schmidt saw in Hobbes was the notion, uh, what he got from Hobbes was the idea that it's Auctoritas non veritas that underwrites its authority, not truth, that underwrites legitimacy. Um, and so, and, and hence his famous axiom that sovereign is he who decides in the state of exception. But maybe, and I think, Sh yeah, Schmidt is right to see that Hob within Hobbes, the logic of depoliticizing the public square is, 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 is sort of is latent. I mean, it's, it is absolutely there. Um, if, if hidden. And um, it's part of the genius of liberalism to convince everyone that all, the only reasonable kind of political or cultural conflict uh, is that that lies within the sphere of the liberal public square. Mm. Uh, and, and I can think of almost no, no other political philosophy that is, uh, so, has been so successfully sort of uh, assertive of its supremacy. In, you know, in the ancient world, you know, in Plato and Polybius and Aristotle, <clears throat> it was just taken for granted that you were going to go through these cycles of radically <coughs> different forms of political authority and legitimacy mm. and constitutionality. And liberalism has sort of played this, this trick, and it's an optical illusion, of course, as, as Schmidt saw, because in fact, the real organising principle of Schmidt, and I think there's a lot of plausibility here, is not between rival, necessarily between rival conceptions of the good or how the public square should be ordered, but is basically tribal. Mm. Uh, and there's a kind of existential tribalism that he talks about. And the friend-enemy distinction, though it's not always understood that clearly, is, is an important one to hold on to. But 
Con, you had a point about the therapeutic. What was your the connection, the question you asked? Is, the, that... is the therapeutic state born yeah. out of the liberal need to uh, diffuse all conflicts? Yeah, I, I think there's, there's something to that. I mean, it's easy to think of the triumph of the therapeutic as a peculiar, peculiarly modern phenomenon, and to some extent it is. But we do see it... We see it in the past, so we see the language of therapeia is a Greek word. It basically means to, you know, to care for. And there's a notion that Pierre Hadot, the French philosopher, has documented very well in a little book called Philosophy as a Way of Life, that that's often what philosophy itself was seen to be. So Stoic mm. philosophy was a kind of a form of therapeia. <clears throat> it was a way of, of um, it was more like a religion, more like how we would understand religion. It was a deity, it was a way of life. The Pythagoreans, for example, they had lots of, they had a particular philosophy, but they had also had particular ways of, that affected their diet, it affected who they would um, break bread with and how they organized their community and so on and so forth. Um, but I think, it, you know, the connection between liberalism and, and the therapeutic, I mean, a part, of the, part of it, I think, springs from a privatizing of possible explanations for moral failure and moral success, what counts as a virtue and what doesn't. If you are forced to bracket discussions and conceptions of uh, the good and deep metaphysical outlooks to consenting adults behind closed doors off, <laughs> off the public square, yeah. then uh, public descriptions of good behavior, bad behavior, of virtue and vice are immediately problematic because they're immediately forcing those questions out the door. Mm. And so it becomes very tempting to see crime as a kind of pathology, like a kind of problem that could be solved with sufficient expertise and a sufficiently assertive state in particular. This is part of the genius of uh, Anthony Burgess and A Clockwork Orange, part of the sort of horror of that. Is the one thing more horrifying than the central character's uh, horrific behavior is the state's response to it, the state's failure to see it as crime. The state's failure and basically inability to see the moral delinquency of this guy and his droogs and to, put, and to treat the crime as a disease, a pathology that can be cured, not quite with a pill, but through shock aversion therapy and those sort of also awful, sort of awful sorts of scenes. And you see the similar sort of dynamics in A Clockwork Orange as well, you know, mm -hmm. that sort of the, the kind of bureaucratic suppression of individual spirit um, through... Um, through the pharmacological and through through sort of institutional uh, institutional constraint, so it's it's a um, I suppose it's also liberalism's you know within the liberal sphere it it finds it very difficult to deal with fundamental disagreement conflict within that basically relies on its own assumptions is mm. fine, but something <clears throat> that comes from beyond like fundamental criticisms have to be either demonized or pathologized, or sometimes both. Hence, mm. hate speech. Yeah, that's simply hate. And we don't need to see anything more about it. I mean, hate is simply code for that is not intelligible within the parameters of our liberal assumptions. Mm. And so we can say, and the, the person driven by hate is a person who's not really driven by reason at all. He's driven by but some kind irrational of completely irrational yeah. spirit that's got to be controlled and yeah. contained and confined. Um, and similarly, where you know, you know, where moral delinquency uh, uh, is, as it were, well, under let's say undertaken by those within sort of privileged victimhood classes within the modern liberal state, then you know it's not pathologized in a sort of ne ne necessarily in a negative way. 
but it is seen as some kind of, uh, some sort of problem that is sort of inflicted by social conditions or, or disparities or, or, or whatever. It's, it's, an, it's a cathartic expression of their indignity at the unjust conditions that they have been placed in. Because yeah. the premise of liberalism is that if we're all created free and equal yeah. with the universal assumption, if, if somehow we can infer from their unequal outcome that there must have been injustice somewhere along the way, so they're right to actually go back and burn yeah. down your business out of rage. Right. And you, you don't yeah. have anywhere else to go. No. Like if you're no. all born free and equal and everyone's in chains everywhere, well, the yeah. only thing that could be to blame is society itself. Yeah, that's right. That's right. L'homme est libre partout il dans les fers. This is Rousseau's great line yep. that we're born in, we're born free, and yet we've we've got these chains of civilization and the institutional life of our culture is sort of shackling us. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.